Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 347th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which this week is brought to you by Hulu's original limited series, Normal People. Nominated for four Emmy Awards, stream it now at hulu.com slash FYC. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today may be short, but he is, according to no less an authority than Chris Rock, quote, the biggest stand-up comedian in the world, close quote, and one of its few remaining bankable movie stars as well. A man who came from nothing and fought his way to the top, where he has found himself in the midst of what New York Magazine describes as, quote, an unprecedentedly long run as the biggest stand-up in the world, close quote, and thanks to a screen persona that Men's Journal likened to, quote, the nonstop yapping underdog who thinks he's the swaggering overdog, the chihuahua that barks like a pit bull, close quote, anchoring an astounding 10 movies that opened at number one at the box office over the past decade. 2012's Think Like a Man, 2014's Ride Along, About Last Night, and Think Like a Man 2, 2016's Ride Along 2 and The Secret Life of Pets, 2018's Night School, and 2019's The Upside, The Secret Life of Pets 2, and Jumanji, The Next Level, and who recently chronicled the ups and downs of this journey in a fascinating six-episode, three-hour Netflix docuseries called Kevin Hart, Don't Fuck This Up, which is now Emmy-nominated for Best Unstructured Reality Program. I'm talking, of course, about Kevin Hart. Over the course of our conversation, the 41-year-old and I discussed how his parents shaped the man he is in very different ways, and how his height helped to shape his sense of humor— the strategic thought process behind his major career decisions, including breaking Hollywood's golden rule and investing his own money in his comedy tours and specials, how he feels nearly two years after the fact about landing and then walking away from his dream job of hosting the Oscars, and his thoughts on cancel culture overall, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you, and congratulations on the Emmy nomination for Kevin Hart, Don't Fuck This Up, thank which is uh, so great. And I guess I just want to say up top here, if it's uh, you know the format of this podcast, we go through some of the big moments of each guest's life and career, so I guess there would be a little overlap. I hope you don't mind, but I think of it as just like teasing the, the full docuseries, which is so great. So... To begin with, just if you could share, we always ask, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? What did my folks do for a living? That's a good question. I know what my mom did. My mom was a computer analyst and my dad was a independent contractor, you know, craftsman for lack of a better, a better word. You know, he was, uh, he was, he was a guy that was just good with his hands and did a lot of things um, that he could. Jobs that pretty much came as as they came. He he gave them his all. You know, when they went, they went. But it was a lot of independent contracting. And and where was this? Uh, Philadelphia, PA. Philadelphia, PA. So mm -hmm. um, now just to help people picture kind of how far you have come with everything you describe living in a one bedroom apartment, sleeping in the hallway with your older brother, just kind of, you know, this could have gone in a very different direction for you. How do you think that upbringing shaped the person you are, even now that things are very different? You know, I think you have to have an understanding of character and uh, an understanding of, of life 
later on to appreciate the obstacles early. Right. So, you know, this this person that I am today, the man that I am today has been shaped and molded from a lot of those obstacles. And uh, I can say that I'm nowhere near perfect. You know, I'm still a a, a person that that has uh, my my levels of shit with me as anybody else. But, you know, I'm uh, I'm OK with with standing in it. I'm okay with accepting myself flawed and all because I've seen it on every level from my mom and my dad. I've seen two people overcome different versions of themselves and ultimately become better. My mom wasn't happy with a version of herself that she was and she turned um turned everything over to God and became religious and some would say over religious, but it worked for her and and put her in a happy place. My dad drugs and all got to a place to where, you know, he went to rehab and cleaned himself up and at the cleaning himself up, never went back to that uh, version of himself that he was. So I think it's dope to see people go in and out of downfalls and, and come out better. And I can say the two of them were my parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things the docuseries really captures beautifully is how from your mother, you know, there, you got this sort of personality where you don't waste a minute of the day and maybe to a fault, like it's just nonstop for you. Right. And, and so why was that so important to her that you just fill every moment of your day? Um, I think, I think for the most part with, with my, uh, you know, with my mom, it was, how do I, how do I occupy all of this time to assure myself that my son isn't on the streets? And, you know, in North Philadelphia, that was a, that was a big problem. A big problem was the, the time to go and do stupid shit or be a part of stupid shit. That's what a lot of the young generation at that time was doing. You know, we were, when I say we, not that I was involved. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was. Uh, but, uh, you know, well, your brother was, was, I mean, you talk about my brother the- was, so was I, 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 I did my fair share <laughs> of dumb shit too. But you know, that extra time was time that was spent just doing, doing things that you shouldn't be doing, you know, running the streets, getting into mischief and trouble. So because of the problems that my brother had, she went wanted to try to take them away. She wanted to try to remove me from that environment. And the best way was to over uh, extracurricular activity. Mm-hmm. As a fellow person who is not especially vertically gifted, I've got to ask just out of curiosity, how do you think when you stopped really growing around eighth grade, I think you've said, you know, was that something that shaped your personality? Was that where the self-deprecating stuff started? Well, for me, I mean, self-deprecation is, is it was easy because it's something that I did naturally, you mm-hmm. know, um, I didn't excel in a lot of the things that I was in. I was good, but I was never the best. So <laughs> I found comfort in acknowledging where I was wrong, played basketball. I wasn't the tallest, whatever. I know I'm small, but I'm gonna defend the hell out the ball. And <laughs> you know, the joke was about me not being the best scorer, the best defender, or, you know, the best assister, uh, in swimming. I wasn't the fastest, but it was because I didn't try the hardest and really apply myself at 
practice the way others did. So that joke became one that I made first. Mm -hmm. Like it was one that I was adamant about uh, <laughs> getting to the table and saying so nobody else could say it. And that's something that I developed. You know, it's hard for you to say something that's already been said and get the laugh that I got. Right. So I'm going to beat you at it. So self-deprecation, <laughs> it was developed. It was a skill that I personally developed and uh, stayed true to. Yeah. So growing up, what were the things or the people that made you laugh the most? And then when when did people first start actually telling you that, hey, Kevin, you're funny, but like not, you know, not just like we you told a funny joke, but you are just a guy who's known for being funny. I, absolutely. I mean, I've always been. I've always had the personality. I've always had a sense of humor. Um, that was my way to weave in and out of trouble if it ever presented itself. You know, the funny guy always wins. The funny guy can always defuse any and every single bomb, um, you know, especially in an environment of rage. The funny guy is the one. All right, man, what are we doing? Calm down. <laughs> what are you doing? Jerry? Yeah, why you on here, Jerry? He the nicest guy. We the nicest people. Y'all don't want to do that. He it's very easy for that conversation to be had. And it's one that I was always in the front of. So very happy, very happy to be the funny, personable guy because uh, I knew the power that came with it. But what about, uh, you know, some of the models of being funny? Who were those for you when you were a kid? You know, the people that made you laugh the most? You know what? My mom, but it wasn't because she was funny. My dad, but it wasn't because he was funny. It was just because of the things that I've seen him do, the shit that I've witnessed <laughs> that that I learned to laugh at. It wasn't that you laughed because it was, oh, my God, hilarious, funny. I mean, my family went through it all and I've seen it all. Yeah. So to find humor in the dark side, you really got to search for it. You really got to search for it. And in the in the doggy series, you give a few examples where I think maybe in the moment when it, when something was actually happening, you were a little cringy about it. But then you found ways to to make it funny, like you talk about your dad showing up at your school without his drawers on or yes. things like that. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. So I think also maybe some of these people who I'm looking at behind you also were big influences. When when did the Richard Pryors or the different folks like that first cross your radar? You know, I mean, that was from my dad. My dad was a big comedy fan. And, you know, listening to my dad's comedy albums at a young age is where I came across the Red Foxes, the Eddie Murphy, the Pryors, uh, listening to stuff that I shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> Eddie Murphy Raw. Um, at the time, my mom was a big Sinbad fan, and that was the only comic, and Bill Cosby, that I associated, but I associated that from my mother. So I got kind of a balance of good versus what was considered to be the raw and the edgy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just going listen to it. It wasn't that at that time I decided that comedy was for me. It was later as I started to grow and get the curiosity of entertainment and that bug that I, you know, that I was... I was even familiar with the likeliness of those that I just mentioned and, you know, it was which styles would best fit me and how could I infuse all in one. And as I developed that thing developed and you could see the little pieces of each mm -hmm. as it, as it all shaped together. So you, you've mentioned that, you know, in, in a number of places, including in the docuseries, your mom worked at University of Pennsylvania, great school. You also acknowledge that you didn't really apply yourself. Otherwise you might've been able to, might well have been able to go and study there yourself. Instead, you graduate high school, you start at, uh, I believe, a community college in the area. And then I guess, though, what basically coming out of high school was your 
game plan? What was your what was your vision of your future at that point? Well, this is the beauty of honesty. I didn't have one. Mm-hmm. Right? I didn't I didn't have one. Like like this is where this is where you go, you know, where where some people try to make it glamorous, make the story look good. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be honest. I didn't have a fucking plan. I didn't I didn't come out of school with the dream of becoming a doctor and a oh my god and now that I'm I'm going to go to college for 4 years and I'm going to do you know the unthinkable it's no no that wasn't it my plan was to play basketball oh man this is good I'm playing varsity basketball hopefully I can get a scholarship and then I'll go and play basketball at a school and I'll go to the NBA Man, this NBA shit don't look like it's gonna happen. <laughs> what, what? What? Where? Uh oh, I'm in Mugs, trouble with that. Bugsy Bugs. Yeah, I guess man. Was I thought I thought I was gonna be the next Bogues, the next Spud Web, and it just it just went away. That stuff yeah. just started to go away. So what the fuck? What's yeah. what's next for me? What's where? What do I have? And what what are my options? And they kind of that door just narrowed down. And I find myself not at a university at all. I find myself at a community college because I didn't take advantage of the opportunities that were in front of me. I didn't try my best or, you know, put forth my best effort. So when that reality hit, I find myself searching when my friends weren't. All of my friends had a plan. All of my friends vetted it out. I didn't. I didn't. And, and, and it showed so community college became the plan, not because it was, but because I had no choice and it had to be. And was it while you were at community college that you also started working in a shoe store or was that when you left community college? Uh, that fell that summer, that summer that we were, that summer that I went and decided to partake in community college, you know, it was very clear that this wasn't going to just be it. I had to find something else. And my mom was like, it's time for you to become a young man. And by young man, that means all around the table. Like, you need to figure it out. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try my best. Mm -hmm. And getting a job was my way of showing my mom that I'm at least making an attempt. Mm -hmm. And City Sports of Philadelphia was that job. And, you know. The, the rest is history from there. Exactly. I mean, this is kind of now like legendary stuff where basically you're, of course, the funny guy who's working there. Your coworkers are getting a kick out of you. And I guess if just, you know, for for the record, uh, do you remember, you know, what was specifically suggested to you and then what went down that first night at the Laugh House? I think the first night at the Laugh House when I had the opportunity to actually go and perform it was man this is an amateur night (laughs) i got worried about the amateur night and it was this is actually me doing something that i thought about doing but i just didn't know how to go about Mm -hmm. this is crazy that i'm actually going to be able to try stand-up comedy it was more of an excitement behind me going to do something that I saw people that I admire do. This is real. I got an opportunity to do. This was because these coworkers are saying, Kevin, you got to try this, right? Yes. They suggested it because I was funny. 
Yeah. So once the reality hit that they found a place and this place did stand up and I could go and actually do it, it was kind of uh it was kind of mind blowing. Like, holy fuck. <laughs> this is dope. I'm about to do stand up comedy. Right. And how did it go that first night? Uh the first night it was amazing. So you were you you were a natural. You know what it was? Here's what I mean by amazing. It was amazing because I did what I what I said I was going to do. And I wasn't a finisher. At this point in my life, I did not realize that I was a finisher. I was a person that just skated by. Mm. And the maximum effort was not applied. The talent that I now have and the discovery that I now have was later realized. And, you know, I, I latched on to it at the tail end. It wasn't something that was instant. My mom, she did her best to tell me and to show me, but I didn't put it to, to use. Mm -hmm. So this was the first time I actually said I was going to do something and I set my mind to it. And from start to finish, I did it. I had to get a set together. I worked hard to get what I was going to talk about. And I knew that the date was coming up, that I was going to do it, that we agreed that I was going to do it. So I knew that I needed to have five minutes of material by then. And I worked my ass off on getting what that five minutes of material was. And then when it was time for the show, I did it and got laughed. It was the first time that from beginning, middle to end, I started. Mm. I started and I finished. And we should say that the... Uh you know, I guess the ultimate sign of uh, that this was working was that for, I th believe the first, was it several, maybe six amateur nights that you showed up for, you are leaving there with 70 some odd bucks. $70. Yeah, $70. $70. <laughs> mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, people chose you, they, they laughed that you were the funny guy. And, uh, and I think now like, it seems like that's when it starts to sink in. Wait a minute, I might be on to a, a potential career, which makes me want to come and ask you now. This mother of yours who had been, as you say, very straight laced, very wanting you to have a, a sense of direction, but also not wanting you to, you know, waste time. How did she feel that this was the path that you finally decided you were going to go down? Well, you know what? Uh, when I made the decision and I said, and by the way, this wasn't like the thing that I ran and just gave as information. It was me going to myself do you want to do this, Kevin? There's a conversation that I have with myself. And to people out there, there's nothing wrong with talking to yourself. There's nothing wrong with checking yourself. There's nothing wrong with asking yourself 15 to 20 different questions. There is everything right about that because you're making sure that you're ready to do whatever it is that you want to do. So after seeing the effort that I put into the one thing, I said to myself, with that being said then, Kevin, if you say that this is what you're going to do, you have to really do it. And the only way to do that is to commit to it. And I committed to it mentally. And after making that decision, I went and I told my mom. That's how I put all of my eggs in one basket. Because after saying that, there is no going back. Because my mom could then have that over me. Mm -hmm. As you say things, you don't do them. You never complete. And I didn't want to give my mom that ammunition. So when I said that and I said, I swear, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do in my life. My mom then said to me, well, then you're going to have to make a deal. And I knew that that would be the response. <laughs> I knew that there would be some type of commitment that I had to basically show that I was all in. And when that commitment came, I was ready for it. And she put me on a clock like I knew she would. And it was basically she would financially help you for like a year 
and then you're on your own, right? Pretty much. Pretty much. It was, you have a year to show that you can support yourself doing this. Mm -hmm. And this is before I even knew that she planned on helping me. She knew in the back of her head that she was going to help me, but I didn't know it. So right. after that, after that time, and we were on that clock, it was about me saying, "Fuck, I got no choice." Because if I don't do it, I got to keep my commitment to her, and that was that I have to go back to school. Mm-hmm. Why, I believe, from in those earliest years that you were getting into comedy, why were you going by Lil Kev the Bastard? Because I didn't know any better. In Philadelphia, where we did comedy, and where I started comedy, every comedian had a thing, you know. Every comedian had a had a nickname, and just to go through a couple, it was Tommy Too Smooth, it was Buck Wild, it was you know Cool Bubba Ice, it was uh, who else had like a name? I mean, there there were so many names <laughs> uh, that that people had. Talent was one of them. Uh, JB Smooth. It was just a whole mm-hmm. bunch of names. And I was like, well, there's no way that I can be serious about this craft and not have a name. Mm-hmm. I got to have a name. So, all right, fuck it. Lil Kev the what? And one of my friends was like, the bastard. I was like, you goddamn right. <laughs> <laughs> little, little Kev the bastard is what it is and what it's gonna be, and uh, that's where that's where you know I was like, I just jumped in feet first. Yeah, well, going back and reading, you know, some of the particularly the early interviews where you were talking about just finding your voice, you've often given a lot of credit to a guy who some people who like comedy will will know, other people should go and check out, but who is Keith Robinson and why, I guess, how did he become an early important mentor for you? Keith Robinson is one of the best individuals walking the planet. Um, I mean, Keith Robinson, literally, he he just changed my life and understanding of what a comedian actually was. And after seeing me in Philadelphia and realizing that I was a funny guy, he said that there's more to being funny than just the instant laugh. There's a story that you can tell. There's a definition in education that should be aligned with your name that an audience should be able to walk away with and from. He basically gave me that realization and understanding that I was just going on stage and I was just doing funny stuff. But when people left the show, they left without a definition of just who I was. Mm -hmm. They knew nothing about me. And he said, is that what you want to do and who you want to be? Idiot. (laughs) That was his exact words to me. He would call me stupid. Is that what you want to be? Stupid. And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I want to be better. I want to do better. And he said, then start being a person on stage and stop being a character. And what seems so simple, what seems so easy was like, it was mind blowing, mm-hmm. right? Because you, you easily go on stage just trying to get the laugh and you, you do it by being a version of what you think you're supposed to be. Keith Robinson gave me the understanding that I could just be me. Mm-hmm. And I learned, I learned how to do that. And when I learned how to do that, it was nonstop. It was nonstop after that moment. That was the end of Lil Kev the Bastard? That was the end of Lil Kev the Bastard, and that's when I became Kevin Hart. Yeah. And it sounds like that was also when you, with Keith for a while at least, were 
starting to go into New York, which was obviously even more of a comedy uh, hub for, you know, hub for comedians. And you've talked about the fact that when you were there, there was some observing, you know, very experienced comedians. There was also recognizing that there were like two sorts of rooms and that you kind of dabbled in both. What was what was the New York comedy scene like that was new to you? And in, in, in what sense was it new to you? The New York comedy scene was different. You know, in Philadelphia, we had a comedy club and the rest were rooms. By rooms, I mean creative environments where you could go and do comedy. And, you know, it was funny because this kind of doubles within the conversation of the day when you talk about the the systematic racism that mm -hmm. now is being brought to attention. Um, as a black comic and black comics, we didn't have access to the environments that were created for comedy. We had to create our own because we couldn't get on those stages. Even in today's time or yesteryear's time, uh, it's extremely hard and it's made difficult. So you find yourself performing at shacks, at bowling alleys, at lounges, at makeshift restaurants turned into. You had to go and figure it out. And the creativity that goes in that is you're you're now performing in these environments that aren't conducive for comedy, but that you make conducive for comedy so you end up being better at your craft because mm -hmm. there is no distraction and all the distractions of food and drinks going back and forth you're still making people laugh well in any regular room where they're set in position to do just that you're going to fucking shine mm -hmm. so i had the balance of being in all of the quote-unquote shit like environments and then when i went to your quote-unquote mainstream neat and prepared well i was coming with such a a well-engined machine and I never wanted to not have the balance. So I did them both. And they were literally called like, like in the same way that people talk about the, there's a, there was a genre. It's not really politically correct anymore, but they would call it urban music. There were urban rooms for a comedy, right? You would go between the urban room and the main room. Listen, the politically correct way that you're saying is urban. You had black rooms and you had the white rooms. Mm -hmm. And we referred to the white rooms as the mainstream. They referred to the black rooms as the Chitlin circuit. This is a very true story. Mm -hmm. The Chitlin circuit or the black rooms. That's what it was referred to as. And you you took pride in the fact that you could kind of go over as funny in both rooms, right? Uh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. I didn't like the fact that there was a boundary and I didn't like the fact that some people didn't cross. And, you know, doing the black rooms, we made money. Because we got, you know, paid and there was more money available than there was in the quote unquote white rooms or the mainstream side. But I said, fuck that. I'd rather not make any more money and break these grounds and still do both and find a balance in between. And most people weren't patient with that. And I was. And it's not, you know, for, for young people listening, it's not like this is ancient history. We're talking about what, like the, the, what would this be? The, the late 90s? I mean, you're talking late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, that's crazy. And I Absolutely. mean, has it gotten better since then? Um, It 1,000%. I got to be careful with this answer because I think it depends on who you're asking, right? Like, I think that there's some places that are trying to get better. Mm -hmm. I think that there's some places that are trying to... To maneuver differently, you know, especially mm -hmm. because of the temperature of today. I mm. think that I think that that's a good thing that we have the attention of those that are 
in this space that control these environments to realize, wow, okay, we need to do better with giving the opportunities to um, a diverse talent or a diverse group of talent, right? And that's, and that's a good thing. That's something that I'm not going to say that they may or may not be aware of. What I will say is that I know from experience where it was tough. I know from experience where there was a lack of. So I think that mm -hmm. because of other comics as well as myself, just saying about the difficulty that there has been over the course of comedy in the years of black comics getting that opportunity or, or getting a shot at that and being a part of that revolving machine, it was less than more. So as a person that beat the system and beat the system because I was willing to go through what the system put out, then I can now be vocal about everybody shouldn't have to go through all of that to beat the system. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it, it shouldn't be that crazy and that tough and the guidelines and parameters should be equal for all those across. And in those years, especially my up and coming years, I can say that they weren't in today's time. It's hard for me to speak on it adamantly because I've been removed from that. Right. Right. You know, right. there isn't a place that I go in now and that I experienced that right. because of who I am and what I am. But mm -hmm. that's not to say that it's not there. Right. I'm willing to bet that it does still exist. Sure. I'm just not involved to know the guidelines and how how much it exists today versus yesterday. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the way you first began to basically be removed from that, probably the end of your days in smaller rooms, was another comedian, Dave Attell, introduces you to the manager who you still have, Dave Becky which sort of leads to your first work out West, first big paydays or what felt in those days, probably like a big payday where you basically go under a contract uh, with some, a talent deal with ABC, you move to LA. And at that point you start doing pilots for TV. These are people, you know, with people who now everybody's talking about Judd Apatow, Stephen Levitan, but for you, those early projects, it, it might've been a little discouraging, right? Cause nothing was actually getting picked up. Right. You, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, this at that point in my in my career, you know, in the earlier in the earlier side of things, it's like fuck, man. Uh, I was doing pilots with the the bigger the bigger names of today, and this is early on in their careers when you know they were they were all in the conversation seat. They were all a part of the the hot seat of fuck. This is. This is, these are the guys. Yeah. These are the best writers in town. And these are the best showrunners. And I somehow finagled my way to get in front of these people and to get these opportunities. And I can say nothing but great things about Judd Apatow and about Steve, both good friends of mine today, uh, both people that I work with to mm -hmm. this day in different ways and different capacity. But, but what I will say about those times where things didn't work out, they were lessons. Mm -hmm. Like earlier on, the things that I thought were going to be the biggest and best opportunities for me, they weren't. They weren't. And there's a there's a rug that you feel like gets pulled up from under you because you, all you're thinking about is each opportunity is the only opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what I had to realize was that that just means that now uh, there's room for something else. 
There's mm-hmm. knowledge that I'm able to bank and I'm able to prepare for what that thing is. Whatever it may be, it's something else coming. This gave me more experience. This gave me more preparation. And this gave me more of a, 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 a vision, you know, because I'm getting to see win or fail or lose. I'm seeing it. Yeah. I'm seeing the things that were once conversations and that's a step closer. So I was well, able to kind of develop that mindset. Yeah. And I mean, there were uh, people may remember undeclared, which was judge show. There were a few episodes before it got canceled. But the one that I think is almost the, the most interesting case study of just, you know, a time that might have a, a thing that might have made some, you know, people just give up altogether. Can you share what was the big house and how did you find out it was uh, it was not going to be? You know, the big house, that one hurt. That one hurt because of the way that it went down, you know, um, that show getting picked up and seeing that my name was on as a writer, uh, as an EP, as a star, you know, it's, this is it. I'm out of here. I'm a star. This is it. I'm done. Nothing else. Mom, I did it. <laughs> and uh, that rug getting pulled out was a was a major fuck. Like right at up front. So it was, you, I mean, this is, that's for people that don't know, that's like where you're going to have your big unveiling. You, from what I understood, you're a good guy. You fly everybody else from the show to New York for the upfronts with all the advertisers there. You got a new suit. You're ready to go. And what happens? Uh, I mean, what happened was I got a big uh, hand in my chest when it was time to walk on that stage and uh, a quick verbal, they're not picking you up. And it was everything opposite from what I thought would be mm-hmm. everything opposite from what I thought uh, was going to happen. You know, this was this was a fucking opportunity of a lifetime. And just mm-hmm. like that, it was over. The door was closed. And then in terms of films, not far from that time was uh, your first leading role in a film, Soul Plane, which which also didn't go over particularly well. Did you think at that point, like this is over for me or did you always believe you could rebound from that kind of stuff? You know, that one, that one definitely put a nice little, uh, chink in my armor. You know what I mean? That one, that one definitely gave me a body shot of, Oh shit. And after that body shot, it's like, fuck what, what, what happens after this? Where do I go? After this. And, you know, it took some soul searching and that's where stand up comedy came back into play and played a major key and a major factor. Getting back on the road and getting back to something that I felt I controlled and that I could progress in where I wasn't waiting on the decision of others that that served as my muse. That was my safe haven. And that got me through that. Yeah. So I found some success in getting some shows booked and, you know, doing NACA, which was a college conference where you could get booked at universities and started doing more comedy clubs. And the tickets that I was selling were enough to to make me not only a headliner, but a recurring one. And that's what life was about. It was about yeah. being on the road and growing an audience. And so your stock starts rising again. And uh, I, I guess, you know, so you'd taken a few professional hits but then I think what's got to be as as rough a personal one as ever would have been just as you're starting to get your mojo back, I think you now, your mother, who had never been able to see you perform live because of religious considerations, obviously was extremely still supportive of all of your success to the point where 
she did not want to even distract you when she learned that she had been diagnosed with with cancer, which ended up taking her life. And so I just wonder, you know, if it's not too personal to ask, just knowing that she believed in you that much, cared that much about the fact that you were now getting to do what you wanted to do, that she would withhold that information even you know, looking back, that's that's as much a vote of confidence as showing up at your shows, right? Hey, man, what the fuck? You crossed the line. Just joking, man. No, sorry, I always wanted like, to say that. I always wanted to say that. And, and I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, motherfucker. That's it. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just never, I've never been able to say that. I've never been able to say that in an interview. I thought that this would be a good time to just... <laughs> To just do something yeah. crazy like that has has been my dream. My yeah, dream I almost is just jumped to, off my balcony snatch, here. <laughs> yeah, my dream. My dream is just to snatch the microphone off of me one day. Motherfucker, I said none of that shit. You did it anyway. And just it just storm off. Um, no, man. Listen, I can say that. I think the beautiful thing about my mother is knowing the woman that she was. Uh, and my mom's a very stubborn, do it yourself and less is more, right? And through those times where she was going through it, her biggest worry was pressure on her kids. She didn't want to worry her kids. She didn't want me and my brother going crazy and dealing with you know, what she looked at as her problem, which is why we got a late notification. And by the time we found out, there was nothing that we could do. And granted, as much as it hurt to lose my mom, I know that my mom's intentions were in the right place. It was in the right place of, I want my boys to continue on their journey of success. And at that time, I was working. The acting had just started going. I remember I was doing Fool's Gold mm -hmm. when I got the word. And I had to fly from Australia back home. And the last thing she wanted was to stop an opportunity. She didn't want that. And as mad as I was when we found that out, like, fuck, mom, you should have told us we could have caught this earlier on. Her heart was in a good place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it takes a lot for you to get that and understand that. But once you do, you have to support that. Mm -hmm. So Nancy Hart is one of the strongest, most unbelievable women that have ever walked this earth. And... She did an unbelievable job with me and my brother. Mm -hmm. And because of the job that she did, I'm I'm able to process her side of it. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of it, I did it. It was more anger, a little more just upset at, at what she did. But now, now it's different. Mm -hmm. Well, it really, I, I guess it's like having somebody looking over you when you look at how basically the great run of success started shortly after that. I mean, the, and in terms of stand-up specials, I just want to mention to people, first one, I believe 2009, Kevin Hart, I'm a grown little man talking about some of, you know, among other things, early years of your marriage, uh, 2010, Kevin Hart, seriously funny, getting into fatherhood, Kevin Hart, laugh at my pain in 2011, which was also, I think the first one to become a film, mm -hmm. um, talking about losing your mom and, and reconciling with your dad. Did the success of those early specials where you're talking about very personal things reinforce that idea that that's what you need to do you to, to make this work? For it to be as successful as possible, you, you're going to have to not hold very much back about your own life, right? You know what? I think the, the biggest and best part from an understanding is I have an opportunity to tap into what the greats did. 
right? And when you look at Eddie, when you look at Richard, when you look at uh, Cosby, when you look at Carlin, when you look at, you know, I can I can just continue to go down the list. Uh, Bernie, these are people that opened up and exposed their personal lives. And some comics find comfort with that and some don't. But I said, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to go full fledged balls to the wall here. Mm-hmm. I have no reason to not. And I have no reason to just hold on to my memories or my pain. If this is what I'm going to do in my profession, then let's let's put the good and the bad out there and, and make the best of it. And it's the gift and the curse. Mm-hmm. You know, right now in the beginning of my career it serves the gift. And as I grew, it serves the gift. But, you know, right now you sit, quote unquote, at the top of a mountain and then it serves the curse because now I have so much out there and you're, you know, you're scrutinized or ridiculed for so much. But you become you're OK with that. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the vest that I now have on is one that's been hit up so many times. It, those shots don't hurt anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't, they don't have the same impact because my feel good comes in being vulnerable mm-hmm. on all sides of the table. And once you make that decision, then you're okay with the things that come with it. You're okay with the opinions and levels of conversation that are attached to it. And unfortunately, once again, it's the gift and the curse. Right. But if you're going to be there to accept the crazy gift, then you better be there to stand when that fucking curse hit. Cause it is going to hit. But make sure that you stay in there the same way that you stood for the gift. Well, and I guess, you know, at least you kind of maximize. If you're going to put that stuff out there, you made it count for something because it was around those same years, I think, that you became, that was the first time you became a a really smart businessman where if we look at Laugh at My Pain, for instance, which was, again, released in theaters, that didn't happen because the studio came in and said, we want to finance and distribute this and all of that. You broke the what's supposedly the golden rule of Hollywood, don't spend your own money, and you bet on yourself in a, in a significant way. A lot of money goes into making these, these specials that have gone to theaters, but the rewards can also be pretty great. And, and so I guess starting with Laugh of My Pain, that was the first time you did that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that was a suggestion that you know, really made me, it made me okay with taking risk, right? Like when I got the opportunity to take Laugh My Pain theatrically and release it and knew that it hasn't been done and that I could jump once again into the conversation with the greats before me, well, you know, there's a piece of me that said, fuck it, let's, let's do it. Like, you know, you don't, you don't do amazing things by being afraid of the amazing results and if these things weren't meant to be then they're not meant to be but there's a chance that I can get there and there's a chance that I can I can have the unthinkable happen but I got to be willing to stand in in that 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 tub I got to be willing to to stand there and see if the tub fills up just right or if it overflows Mm -hmm. and in this case it it worked out it worked out great and it it you know you would kind of put more chips on the table and also win more chips with Kevin Hart. Let me explain in 2013, which was this 80 city 10 country stand up tour that ends up being filmed at Madison square garden. And, uh, first of all, selling out that place, only the sixth stand up to do that. But then also going to theaters. I, I read you spent 2.5 million to make that. It ended up grossing 32 million. That's pretty incredible. 
And then later, of course, with Kevin Hart, What Now? in 2015, 45 City Tour, three sold-out shows at MSG, uh, and then the big culmination, 68,000-seat football stadium where the Eagles play, sold out, highest-grossing stand-up tour of all time, turned into a film, which also did tremendously. And I guess, you know, for you, as you've sort of alluded to in other things, it's just about raising the bar with each one of these, right? Uh, that was a big, that was a big ordeal for me, you know, in this particular time, it was all right. You know, I did it once and it worked. It was, it was pretty goddamn good. Right. And after realizing that it was, well, how do I raise the bar? You know, um, I should go and I should take this and treat it like real estate or anything else. When people want to continue to win, they keep flipping their money. They keep taking their money and putting their money into themselves. So at that point, I didn't want to go and and ask or or get someone else to do when I had the means to do it. So I said, okay, well, let's let's go harder this time. Mm -hmm. That's first time it was like seven hundred thousand. Let's let's do a little more. So it was about two point five, maybe a little less or a little more. And once again, the risk ended up becoming a reward. So I. I I realized at a time when it was okay, not to say the temperature of the world is the same now, that there's nothing wrong with trying to invest. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Pretty much trying to invest in you. Yeah. I just, I want to talk about the fact that in those years is when the film career also started going. I believe, you know, there people can go back and look through your credits. They see the early years. They may vaguely remember you in Scary Movie 3 or Along Came Mm -hmm. Polly, 40-Year-Old Virgin, some of this stuff. But it became about Kevin Hart being a movie star, I guess, for the first time with Think Like a Man in 2012, which I think is one of 10 movies of yours that I believe opened at number one. And I just wonder, as we go through the, you know, just some of the titles here, Think Like a Man in 2012, uh, Ride Along, You and Ice Cube in 2014, Think Like a Man 2 also in 2014, also about last night in 2014. That's a that's mm-hmm. a hell of a year to have three movies go to number one in one year. Get Hard in 2015 and The Wedding Ringer in 2015. Uh, Farrell and Gad were your guys there. Ride Along 2 in 2016, Central Intelligence in 2016. Just um, talk about building a film career like this. It, it, I think that's something that everybody would aspire to, but you've been strategic about it in a way that the only other person I can think about is Will Smith, who who's literally studied the box office statistics and said, all right, this is what those guys, the top box office guys had in common. I should be sort of modeling my career after theirs. Did these things just end up being what you did or, or has there also been a, um, a strategy to it all? You know what? This is how can I be consistent in ways that other actors have been too cool to be. How can I take advantage of a iron that's seemingly hot and put myself in a position to be exposed, but at the same time, make sure it's not overexposed Mm -hmm. because the whole conversation was, or, you know, according to the media and everybody else then is, Oh, it's 10 minutes of fame. We're going to be up. He's doing too much. He's all over the place. He's overexposing himself. But at the time, I was controlling my level of marketing distribution. I was the forefront of my exposure. So I had studios following my lead at the time. Uh, And then putting those movies out, they were different movies. And they were movies that were highlighting what was missing from the big screen. We didn't have 
a consistency within our quote unquote funny black leading man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the Chris Tucker and the Martin Lawrence, you know, they were they were on the break at that time. Those guys weren't doing the movies like that. Will Smith wasn't doing the movies like that. Eddie Murphy wasn't doing the movies like that. And you got to remember, those were our strong names. Those mm-hmm. were our strong comedic leads um, after that. So you didn't really have your dominant face, like the the guy that acted as the next one in line to duplicate that success. And I saw that. I saw that that void was was there. It hasn't been fulfilled. So if I was adamant about it and I was finding the project, which which uh, I credit Will Pack and myself for doing, like while we would be filming a movie, we were looking for the one to do after. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the the Think Like a Man, the Ride Along, the About Last Night, that came at the same time. We planned that. Mm-hmm. We we laid that out. We know that we had those scripts. We went to the studio ahead of time. This is what we want to do. And we were all, we were basing it off of the quote, quote unquote success that the movie that we were filming at the time could have. Now, if that movie bombs, then we're fucked. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. fucked. <laughs> but we're setting all this stuff up based on what we think is going to work. And to date, I hate to even bring attention to this, but there hasn't been a theatrical dud right, by right. me. And that's not, you go back to what? If you want to go back to... Uh, it would I have mean, to be pre-Think Like a Man, because since then it's, it's pre-Think Like a Man. Yeah, and those yeah. are movies where I was, they weren't my movies. Right, right, right. You know, so when it gets to the space where we actually put the movie on my back or where I had to be in the forefront and a big part of the marketing side of it, well, those movies have all succeeded. And, and some has been by the strategic uh, combination and alignment within those movies as well. Well, you let know? me ask you, though. I mean, pretend if you can step outside your skin for a second, mm-hmm. just as an objective guy who really gets this industry. What is it that people are responding to most about Kevin Hart? There are people that are very funny. There are people that are hardworking. You know, there are others that do some things that you do, but what is it that, how do you explain this kind of success, which there are very few parallels to in the history of movies? I think explaining it or trying to explain it, it makes it tough because it's hard to explain what you don't see happening. It's hard to explain that it's, you can have a, a, a big dream and want like we wanted to, like I said, playing these movies back to back and set them up. But it's all based off of the hope and hypothetical that this one that we doing bang. And this should because it's a great script. We got the great director, the great producers, a great studio. It's aligned to do what we think it can. And just in case it does, we don't want to wait until it did to then say, let's go to the drawing board. We're at the drawing board already. So it's hard to say it was, you know, the success behind it all is planned. What I can say is, I watched where other people made mistakes mm-hmm. and I said, I don't want to make those same mistakes. Right. And here's the thing. You can get very cocky in this space and try to put it all on your back. You can try to put it all on your back. Will Smith and Tom Cruise are two of, you know, the only movie stars that I have ever witnessed to take every fucking movie that they did for a long period of time and put the entire thing on their backs. 
I mean, Independence Day. I mean, uh, MIB. You know, when you go, you go to Will Smith's resume. You go look at look at I Am. You go to how many of those movies was Will Smith the last man on earth? <laughs> And he fucking right. rocked them all worldwide. Right. Tom Cruise. How many movies where Tom Cruise was mm-hmm. the last man standing or fighting or Mission Impossible, whatever? Tom Cruise. You got to respect that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio, Denzel Washington. That list gets very small after that. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about franchises. I'm not talking about the things that are titles and catalog friendly that studios have. I'm talking about uh, original IPs that have been made that a a person has been able to go and, and succeed in. Right now, that list is extremely small. So you can't assume that you're going to have that. Mm hmm. At the height of my career, I have not went out and tried to duplicate that. I'm very strategic and I have been very strategic thus far. So whenever I do decide to take that risk, hey, man, there's a fucking resume out this world behind it that justified me saying, all right, this is a $300 million movie that we're going to try. Well, and you've even, in a sense, taken a risk with the upside, for instance. You're, that was one of the first, I think, where it was sort of more dramatic leaning than uh, than these others. And, and that opens at number one. And that's after one of the very right after in the immediate aftermath of one of the very few kind of hiccups that you've ever had to deal with in, in the course of your career, which, by the way, you don't shy away from talking about in Kevin Hart. Don't fuck this up. Uh, and you know, that's the whole Oscar period. Right. It's it's crazy, man, because, you know, I had to I had a battle with the studio of just guys put it out mm-hmm. and and me on that marketing campaign as you saw and don't fuck this up i knew what i was going to deal with i knew the questions that i was going to face i knew it i knew it but i said this can be a test to see where my you know where where's my support you know where where does my fan base stand where where am i at this point and who sees the genuine side of me versus who doesn't how much of the conversation is is splattered on a device or on a meme or on a on a on a on a headline versus what's really the conversation at hand right like how like this is where this is where i got to kind of just play with the the concept of how much of the the stuff that we're being fed is actually what's being eaten or is it just an echo chamber or is it just yeah like some 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 of it can be a plate that you see that you decide to push to the side and say that meal's not for me well can i give you i'm i'm definitely not looking to harp on this but i just want to give you a hypothetical you can talk about whatever this is a great conversation i'm not going to shy you. away from any of it thank you well so that's too fucking far. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. No, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, man. So uh, when you when you withdrew from the hosting, it's two days after the I think the announcement that you were doing it because all you know people start digging through old tweets and that that all happened. The way it was presented was the academy says you've got to apologize or leave. So you said I've apologized in the past. I'm I'm leaving. The thing though is later that same day, and this is what I've always wondered about. 
you later that day tweeted after pulling out, you tweeted, quote, I sincerely apologize to the LGBTQ community for my insensitive words from the past. I'm sorry that I hurt people. I am evolving and want to continue to do so. My goal is to bring people together, not tear us apart, close quote. Mm -hmm. So first of all, knowing that the hosting the Oscars had been your dream, you'd said that for years and years and years. I'm seeing it in interviews going back to 2012. I was wondering if you had sent, if you had basically, instead of later in the day putting out those tweets, if that had been the first thing you put out, don't you think the whole thing would have kind of gone away? Well, every everything makes sense when it's over. Right, right. Hindsight, yeah. Every, everybody's got all the answers after something's over, you know? Every basketball game that's played in the championship, when it goes down to a buzzer beater, we all want to tell the basketball star how he should have did it. Right. <laughs> None of us will never be on that court. None of us will ever have the opportunity to even do something remotely close. But we all got an opinion as to how it should have happened. Of course, of course. In this case, in the heat of the moment, there's a lot of things that I'm thinking as well. And those thoughts weren't necessarily correct looking back at it. Looking back at it, my feeling was one of, I can't believe that this is happening, that people have the audacity to think that this is who I am. There's no way that I'm even addressing this because I know who I am and y'all should know who I am. There's a level of cocky that came into play a feeling like y'all know damn well that I'm one of the nicest guys in the world. My, my resume and everybody that works with me, they know, everybody know. It was a feeling of, how do you not know? Mm -hmm. Who was who acting like they don't know? Because my cockiness in the moment made me feel like everybody should know. Mm -hmm. Granted, there's, there's millions of people who don't know. There's millions of people that may that may take the bait of what's going on and say he is homophobic. He hates gays. He does feel like that because they have no idea about how I am and how genuine I am because they don't know. I didn't process that. So after talking to the Academy and the Academy saying, if you just apologize and just, you know, make this go away, then we can move on. It was a thing of me going, well, you know what, man? I don't like the feeling that I have now with the moment. It's been tainted. I don't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Had nothing to do with the Academy. I can't say this enough. The Academy was amazing mm -hmm. in this experience. The Academy, even after, still tried to get it to happen. And we had conversations, but I felt like it was tainted. And I didn't know moving forward if the taint would be removed. So after I decided to step down, then I knew, hey, I'm going to issue an apology, but I'm doing it on my terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to make sure that people understand that I'm doing this and I'm not forced to do it because right. I felt that that would be the conversation behind it. It would be, oh, wow, he stepped down and then he apologized. He only apologized because he had to step down. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess having now done that, if somebody came to you and said, you know, with whatever this is now, four, three, four years later, the when we can all leave our houses again at some point, if somebody said from the Academy, new, new regime there, they say, Kevin Hart, we know it's your dream to host the Oscars. We think you would be the greatest host that we've had. We've got to 
get off this nonsense about not having a host. Would you please, please reconsider and do it again? Would you be open to that? Well, here's what I honestly think, man. I think that there's, there's such a conversation behind it that I just don't know if that conversation dies. Right. And in today's time, we're amongst, we're amongst a, a time and generation and it's just the opinion is what drives society today. Everybody has enough time on their hands to have an opinion. Everybody has enough time on their hands to weigh in and give a feeling or a sigh or piece of emotion. And as a person who's been on the forefront of that so many times, I don't know how much more I want to do that. I don't know how much more I want to deal with the back and forth of opinion. I'm 41. Right. And I mean, like, just as one example, Seinfeld has said, I'm not playing college audiences anymore because I don't want to have every word picked apart. There are different things like that. Do you feel like it's just gotten to the point where, I mean, Eddie stopped doing stand up, he says, partly because people would start criticizing jokes before he'd even put it out, really, uh, when he was still working on them. Is it has it gotten to the point where comedy, you know, where comedy and cancel culture basically can't coexist? I think that it's it's extremely unacceptable at this point. And I raised the question the other day because I'm working on stand up, and the, the question is, well, who do you want left? Who do we want left? Mm-hmm. Right? And and what what are we trying to create at this time? And within what we're trying to create, what are we trying to get rid of? Because there's so many different fights that are going on at the same time. But from my understanding, they all go and come from a place of change Mm -hmm. to a place of equality inclusion, right? And if that's the case, then you have to have solution. If cancel and anger is the result of every problem, then we're never going to have solution. There was a, there was a podcast or something that was on and they were talking about cancel culture and the people that survived it. And they brought me up saying Kevin Hart survived cancel culture. You know, he kept going. It's like, I don't look at it as I survived cancel culture. I look at it as I was up front and I did something that nobody else did. I just gave you an inside look at what you would never get to know. Simply because this is what people are forgetting. We're forgetting that there are lives that take place outside of what's put on display. So this isn't a, if it doesn't post, it didn't happen. This isn't a, if you didn't see a video or a tweet, it didn't happen. There's actually lives and moments that are lived and that happen and go on. So for me, all of the conversations that I had after the whole thing with the Oscars, the world would have never known. Mm -hmm. You would have never known. You would have never seen the trajectory that I had to make. And that trajectory that I had to make was one of education and understanding based off of solution. Based off of people saying, Kevin, you're not getting it. What am I not getting? Then they explain it. Well, and this is the amazing thing about about your docu series, where really the ser- one of the services of it is that we see how you turned a a, a terrible, uh, probably painful moment into a productive one, where 
Don Lemon is a friend, Lee Daniels is a friend, you reach out and you come out of this thing better. But as you say, not everyone even survives long enough to have that opportunity. And I don't know, I guess the thing that always bothers me is like, who among us is actually perfect? That if we were under the microscope, we wouldn't have a problem ourselves. So anyway, without, I I, want to just close if, you know, the last minute or two, if it's all right, with just looking at these last couple of years, which have been as as uh, successful as any for you, where you have night school, you have Kevin Hart Irresponsible, your second tour turn Netflix, well, turn special, which is on Netflix. And then we have this docuseries. And I, I guess just as the final thing, if it's all right, I'm just going to zoom through sort mm-hmm. of like first thing that comes to your mind. Will there be another season of Kevin Hart? Don't fuck this up because I've I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you better through it. I mean, you know, I don't plan on fucking up no time soon, <laughs> but that's the thing about fucking up. You don't know you're going to fuck up. Right. It happens. And the the goal behind it was to make it a franchise. And, you know, that franchise, it doesn't mean that it's just me. It means that, you know, it consists around whomever and, and, and whatever. But what I, what I love that it showed me, it just showed the, the world that you deal with the world that you deal with while dealing with the world that people think you're you're in and and there's a door and there's what's behind the door and i can't say this enough but i want to make this very clear in this podcast without solution we are forever in a place of problem i only found solution because i was given a chance a resolution was was bought to me because i sat at the table where people explain what I truly didn't know. And in this time, somewhere along the lines, we've lost that fucking understanding. Some people don't know. I didn't know the statistics and the the fight and the hurt and, and the problems that were going on within this community. I didn't know. And here's the crazy part. Why was I supposed to know? Why was I supposed to know? A black kid from North Philadelphia... Now living in California, that's in his own bubble. Yes, I know about the community, but I'm not aware of the day-to-day. I don't know about the growth. I don't know about the dysfunction. I don't know about the trials and tribulations because I'm not connected to it. So there can be a high level of ignorance for lack of understanding. Yeah. But then once I'm given the understanding, then it's my job to go, oh, fuck, which I did. Yeah. After it was broken down to me, not only did I not have an idea, I now understand completely. And I, I, I really apologize again because I understand where it was coming from and I understand why there was such an uproar behind it. I'm sorry. I thought that I did my part in changing over the course of 10 years by not addressing that, but I missed an opportunity to say that I don't condone it again because for the people today, that are going through this to hear me say that, it would make for a magnificent change. It would make for a magnificent bump and push for what they're fighting for. I didn't see that. I'm wrong, but I had to be taught. And you came out of it better, yeah. Exactly. So what is it that makes people not understand within all of the things that they're seeing some of these people go through that there's educational moments that are being missed? Mm -hmm. Make them a teachable moment. 
Right. But the idea of this cancel culture and you can't make a mistake, go fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what every week Bill Maher's saying. What, why does we have to make people go away? How, who, who benefits from making who people go Who benefits from that? Yeah, and and yeah. why is it okay to take one life and kill it? Right. Do you understand what that's doing? Mm-hmm. Do we understand what the idea behind that is? So what we think is doing better is actually killing one? Are we into that day and time? What's next? Are we going to start stoning each other? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are, are we crucifying one another at this point? Because mm-hmm. that's where it's headed. Right. We're headed down to the down the wrong road of destruction. And and at some point in time, media, journalists, headlines, people are going to have to say, we can't give this the same energy. We can't give it the same level of of energy because. We are magnifying what is now the problem. Just under a year ago, we're about to hit the the one year mark on September 1st. We were also upset to hear about this horrific car accident that you had where it, I guess, took place after the docuseries was completed. So it's not addressed in there. But I guess I just want to ask you, what happened? How are you doing now? Is it something that still you're living with the effects of or or just, you know, people want to know how you're doing? Uh, you know, look, the, the, the accident, it happened, but I'm, I'm in a really good place now, mentally and physically, you know, the idea for me was to really bounce back and become a better version than what I was. And the best way to do that was to, to basically say, you got to put the work in to do it. You got to fucking, you got to really step up to the plate and you got to say, I've, I've just been knocked down and it's knocked me down at the highest level. Uh, I lost weight. I lost muscle. You know, uh, the mobility that I once had was no more. And I was told that it was going to take me a year to get back to where I was. And I'm lucky to be walking. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, with that being said, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to now take that as a personal challenge to not only get there, but to get better. And you know, my focus that went into that, it was one that was amazing for me. I was able to put focus into my family, uh, my household and do something that I haven't done in some time, which was sit down. Mm. And, and while sitting down, uh, I just process life differently. And hopefully this adds is another bump to, of growth for me in my life today. Well, thank God you're okay. And then the last thing is this, and it's just obviously it's an impossible hypothetical, but I got to put it out there because people who have gotten this far in the podcast have heard what a, you know, such a uh, inspirational, amazing story to have come from, again, where, where you started to where you are. I wonder though, if those shoe store coworkers had not egged you on to go and try stand up, what would you be doing today? Um, I would be working for... City Sports or Nike, probably in their corporate and their corporate side of it. I would have mm-hmm. worked my way up to get to corporate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, glad it worked out the other way. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> glad, glad it's going good. Glad yeah, it's going. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate how open you are about everything. Hey, man, thank you so much. Thank you so goddamn much, man. This was a great time, a great interview. I appreciate you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free and leave us a rating on iTunes or your podcast app, as well as on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash awards chatter. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.